We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Okay, uh, welcome to another floodcast. Um, today on the show, um, I've got myself, Joe. I've got um, Declan. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm well. <laughs> I've got Matt. <laughs> Hello. And uh, we have uh, a special guest this week is Jim Marlow or Mallow. How do I pronounce your last name? Uh, I prefer Malo, but um, funny story, right? Um, when I asked Dad how we're supposed to pronounce our name, he just said, "Just choose whatever you want," because people are going to get it wrong anyway. So, yeah, it's totally fine. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, and Jim is a junkie journalist, uh, and he's also got a lot of opinions on housing, which is sort of the topic of the day uh, today. So. Um, Jim, maybe if you can just tell us like a, a little bit about uh, your background, that might be a good way to kick off. Yeah, for sure. So um, I have been a journalist for about five years now. Yeah, five and a half years. Um, I first started with um, Channel 7 and then um, for my sins there, I moved to Domain where I was doing property news for four years. Um, that was a bit of a, uh, not exactly what I would like to have done. And I, I do consider myself to be slightly left of center. Please, um, no former employers, uh, listen to this. Um, and for me, that was a bit of a tough thing to sort of, uh, to do because, um, you know, I don't really didn't want to participate in the property market. And I think, um, it can be exploitive in, um, you know, a few different ways. And yeah, I, uh, sort of did that for a little while, um, you know, against, uh, <laughs> against like, uh, my sort of wishes, um, just because like, you know, I needed a job and it was like going to be my stepping stone into something else. And, um, eventually I sort of gave that up because I got offered to do some work with junkie for a bit and, um, I'm going to be with them now for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Great. Um, I was actually also going to ask you, on our last episode, we um, talked a lot about the media and our, our guest was uh, John Ballot, who's a former ABC and News Corp reporter. And one of the things he talked about was his uh, experience as a journalist. Um, he had to sort of suppress a lot of his own political views um, as part of his job. Um, so I imagine that was quite a, an interesting experience for you working at Domain and, and possibly having to do that. Like, how did was that your experience and, and how did you deal with it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my um, my bosses were pretty good in that they weren't sort of like, um, oh, you're you you know you haven't sort of both sides of this enough. Um, you know, they could sort of recognise that um, you know, landlords are losing an investment property um in the middle of the pandemic is slightly worse than uh, slightly less bad, sorry, than a uh, a tenant losing their home and potentially becoming um, what's the word, homeless. Um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic where there's no work or any way to sort of pull themselves out of that. So, you know, we didn't really have to, I didn't clash too much with my, my editors and, um, and anything there. Um, it was just more my, um, my personal sort of distaste with um, uh, sort of like feeling like I was big upping the property market. I mean, we're not really because all we're doing, um, you know, I still believe this, you know, maybe you guys might disagree and I'm, I'm sort of uh, open to the criticism. Um, but in my eyes, we were sort of just reporting what was going on. But you could argue that, um, you know, reporting what's going on sort of um, encourages people to <laughs> take part in the property market and, um, and you know, other other sections of um, our economy and our, our sort of way of life don't get the same attention we, we give the property market, which sort of becomes probably becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. 
Um, but, you know, aside from that sort of distaste of having to, you know, sort of be like, isn't it great? House prices are going up. Um, you know, like we, we did actually make a, a fair bit of an effort to, uh, you know, sort of report on um, housing affordability issues and that sort of thing. But, you know, there were never disclaimers being like, we also profit from house prices going up on our articles. So, you know, you can, you can argue, um, you know, a lot of different uh, ethical issues with that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think like I, whenever I see articles from Domain or um, any of those kind of yeah, property market focused blogs in my feed, it just seems like a um, like a communication from another planet. <laughs> like to me, the property market is so far out of my realm of things that I could ever possibly care about or be involved with because I have like, you know, most people my age, I don't really have any chance of buying um, a house anytime soon. Um which, yeah, which kind of leads me into, I think, like, we're going to be talking more about renting, um, at least for the first little bit, which I think is more the experience that I've had and, and probably that most of our listeners have had. And we thought um, a good way to kick it off would be just to uh, tell some terrible, some horror stories, some rental horror stories. Uh, I've alluded on this show before to my <laughs> terrible landlord experience this year, and I'm looking forward to going uh, fully into that. Um, I brought, you know, diagrams. It's going to be a, a TED talk. Um, but I think uh, Matt and Deck has also had some some horror stories. And um, Jimmy, you mentioned you've got some real estate horror stories. We also had our listeners send in um, horror stories. So I think we might just dive into that. Um, Matt, did you want to kick off and tell us about your landlord who was in the mafia? Yeah, so I had a landlord who it turned out, I'm, I'm fairly sure, was in the mafia. Um, this was in Sydney. When I first moved to Sydney to do my uh, failed PhD a few years ago, fucking uh, quite some time ago now, which is scary. Um, but it was the first time I'd really lived away from home, uh, and I had to find somewhere to live pretty quickly and I didn't uh, really know what I was doing and the property market in Sydney is a fucking nightmare um, it's rents through the roof um, and it's not great in Brisbane but like um, yeah like Sydney makes Brisbane look uh, cheap and easy so I ended up in this place I ended up just like replying to an ad and had someone say like oh yeah like you can come in straight away um, I ended up in this place out uh, in Tempe, which near Marrickville, which is this massive fucking house of like, had like 10 people in it, um, which should have been a big warning sign. Um, so it had all different kinds of people, some were friendly, some were not. Um, and I actually, I, because I was so inexperienced, I ended up signing something I shouldn't have. I signed a contract, which was like, oh, no, oh never yeah, never sign anything. Um, but it was just like, oh, like if you move out. Um, you have to find somebody new to uh, move in, or we're gonna keep your bond. Basically, um, bonds are always. I've never fucking like um, had an easy time getting bonds back. People are always landlords think that once they've got your money, it's their money. Um, and yeah, like so, I gave them a bond, and like I moved into the house, and then I started realizing there's something wrong with this place, like. At first I was like, well, I mean, there were problems with the room, like there was a leak in the roof, um, there wasn't a PowerPoint in the room, um, there was all shit I, like, probably should have, uh, like, been aware of beforehand, but, like, also I was new at this, um, it was under a flight path, so the planes would go overhead and they would be so loud that you had to stop whatever you were doing, uh, before, like, 
and just like wait for them to like roar overhead before you could pick it up again. And the the landlord who was this like like a smallish uh, blonde woman in her thirties, um, she like she'd been really nice to me when I moved in and even like helped me like get a mattress over there and shit like that. But even then, there was kind of a weird vibe. And she had a mate with her who was cagey about what he did for a living and was a bit vague, like, vague in a way that even at the time I was like, oh, this guy's, like, there's something dodgy about this guy, hey? It's the mafia. Yeah, yeah, and they, he was literally, like, I believe, like, well, what happened was to this guy, like, oh, yeah, the, the landlord just, like, increasingly just started, like, harassing us and, like, making it difficult to live in the house and, like, asked us to, like, move bedrooms for a couple of days or were, like, got on our back about the trash or something, which was... The point I increasingly realised was just to make living in the house difficult and inconvenient enough that, like, you'd want to move out. Um, it's just, like, you kind of build and build and become an increasing, like, this is kind of a cooked environment, actually. Um, she, at one point went missing for like a month told everyone that she was going overseas um and then one of the housemates saw her just like on the street in sydney and was like what and she was just like refused to speak and ran away and then like texted (laughs) then like texted the housemate back to be like yeah no i I had an operation on my throat so i can't talk amazing (laughs) i love that and then like so bizarre that's yeah and so how this eventually like I was just having a cigarette with one of the housemates. We were talking about this and she was like, oh yeah, like my partner who is a truckie, uh, he knows another truckie who used to run drugs for um, the one of the like Middle Eastern organized crime uh, organizations. And yeah, he used to drop off drugs at that house. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. And I kind of suspected that already, but I was just like, oh yeah. So she's like, involved in drugs um that other guy she knew also involved in drugs but also this house specifically is like a scam the idea is that you get people in and they like give you their bond and then they move out in very short order and you keep their bond because they've signed something that they shouldn't have and so out of interest um was it like a lot of international students or people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i thought that was probably the case that was the main thing yeah so a lot of like there were yeah um there were, yeah, like, uh, locals as well, but, um, yeah, and kind of, like, younger people as well, and people like me who didn't really know what they were doing. Um, and so eventually I figured that out, and I was, like, um, I was in a position where I could afford to lose the bond, so I was just, like, fuck, and then just got out of there and lost that money. Um, but, like, I knew other people, like, um, people who were living there, um, who couldn't afford that, who were kind of stuck in this horrible situation. And yeah, I, I don't know like what happened to them. Um, but yes, that was like, I had other fucked landlords there as well. I had to I had to go back to Brisbane in a hurry because my dad had died. Um, and the landlord was like, yeah, okay, I'm keeping your bond. Fuck you. Um, that, that, that was like a, it was like a finance bro. So it was like responsibility for like handling the bond had been like passed on to this other guy who lived in this house um who was just like a finance dipshit um and was just like 
yeah, it was just, just like, oh, I'm keeping it because I don't give a shit. Um, but I got that money back eventually somehow. And yeah, uh, that's that's my most fucked landlord experience. That's really fucked. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, like a, there's a lot of that. Hey, like the the what's the word? I'm um, like not uh, not taking into account like extenuating circumstances. Like that happens so often, and I, I've heard it so many times. It doesn't matter like what it is. Like if you know it's a plague, and like your daughter might like you know has a some sort of condition that would you know she would certainly die if she caught it um they just don't care like they need their money or they they need you to get out or whatever it is so yeah monsters. yeah they are just like i don't know why where that where that like um what's the word um entitlement comes from it's it's insane i was actually going to ask you jim um <laughs> later on but this is a good segue maybe if you have some insight into landlord brain that you could give us, because I would say that probably most of our listeners are renters and, or they understand the renter's point of view. Um, but I would imagine like working in for domain, you probably encountered kind of landlord thought um, fairly often. So I'd be interested to know like how they see uh, that landlord tenant relationship and how they justify some of this behavior in their own minds. If you, if you know. Yeah, like I can probably give it a, a decent bash. Um, I've tried to scrub uh, any words spoken by REI, insert uh, like initial here um, from my brain because um, it kind of melts it. But um, it's typically along the lines of like, these people have, you know, saved up to get an investment, you know, they worked really hard and they, they put this money into it. Um, and, you know, anything then to, and then once it becomes their property, right, like anything then that uh, sort of um, impacts their right to enjoy their, or their ability to enjoy the property that they paid for, um, they they tend to, um, you know, arc up about that. And I think that's sort of become like a, like a sacred cow. Is that like, is, can I say that? Is that okay? Um, think so <laughs> <laughs> um, like i don't know like it's become like a this sort of like sacred cow right because then there's just no there's no touching the the property um like you know people's property that they that they owned or that you know they they have the um they have a controlling interest in right like because like the bank owns it typically right so you know when it comes to this thing it becomes um when it comes to property it becomes very hard to sort of like argue around it i mean it's sort of the way our entire society is based i think like a set a settler colonial uh, country you know everyone was sort of staking their claim on um, what they saw as unclaimed land. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of from that, um, you know, we've had this long history of being unable to really um, to reckon with that, I guess. And, um, you know, sort of like think any, you know, uh, what's the word, any more about it rather than um, just like, you know, once it's my property, I get to say and do whatever I want with it. Yeah, that's totally a thing. And like one thing that's always struck me when dealing with landlords is they almost th seem to think that they let you live there out of the kindness of their heart. Like that you're, you know, they seem to forget that you pay a sizable amount of money to live there and that gives you rights over the property as well. Um, yeah. It's just like, oh, I paid a, a you know, I've, I've paid a, a bigger lump sum than you, therefore it's mine. No, a hundred percent. And like, it's, it's not even, it's not even the lump sum. It's the, it's the, what's the word? The fact that, um, you know, they just think, um, you know, like I, I've done this. It's mine. Um, I don't think they even think, you know, about like how much money you've paid them. I think that doesn't even sort of uh, factor into their thinking at all. Um, and it's it's far too much for them to understand or to for them to sort of um, comprehend rather um, that you know you are also enabling them to pay their mortgage, and without that, yeah. they wouldn't have yeah. the house. It's um it's I, I don't think they think about it more than like it's mine. Shut up. And also, I think. Um during the pandemic, we saw this a lot, like the idea that housing 
is an investment like any other investment and you don't always make money on your investment and you're not entitled to make money on an investment like sometimes investments fail or you lose money on them like that um you know that seemed to really uh, set off a lot of landlord tears i had such a long conversation with um with a lady i door knocked who like generally was pretty across most of the greens platform that we've been like trying to articulate here in in brisbane at least um but was really furious with the local councillor because he's been like quite pro like rent strike and stuff like that at the start of the thing and was like you know how dare you know absolutely how dare um and it was such a difficult conversation to get this lady to kind of understand what i was trying to say which is like yeah i understand it might be frustrating for you to lose your house but also if you sold a house you're in an immeasurably better position than most people i know um and then like to go from that place of like forcing her i guess to emphasize empathize with with me and like understand that despite like a political difference there that it is actually reasonable of renters to be frustrated with the like the landlord tenant relationship and then to go to like build a new enemy which is like oh, okay so it's actually like it's not really your fault or the tenant's fault it's actually the fault of like the the bankers and politicians who've like increasingly geared Australian society towards this being the way that you've been told you can get ahead um look it didn't feel great to be honest to let her get away with it but that's what I did did she respond well or did she yeah yeah by the end of the conversation I think she really did um like I wouldn't like go away like leave that conversation betting money that she was like part of our political project but like I think we definitely <laughs> over like the 15-20 minute conversation I think definitely made a lot of progress towards like understanding that this is wrong and definitely like she she did really agree with the idea that like we need to we need to kind of rein in the banks who've kind of like made made her feel like her like her sense of well-being is is wrapped up in these financialized instruments um and like like her ability to have a good life is is conditioned on on like these commodities like ongoing price rises because what that means is that there's people like me who are at the bottom of that pile and it sucks like I think she really did come around in terms of that, but um, but you know, like I wouldn't be able to make any promises around like, like she hasn't sold her house and like you know joined a convent or anything. So I think yeah, I might go next um, in terms of horror stories. Uh, okay, so yeah, my my partner and I were living in um, a flat that was uh, one half of an old Queenslander in Highgate Hill. And it had a, a really big uh, kind of wild garden, like a rainforest gully type of garden. And the, the whole place was pretty old, um, not very well maintained. And there was this big pile of trash in the garden. Um, I mean, like a lot of it was palm fronds, but there was also old building waste and um, chicken wire and what we suspected might have been asbestos and just terrible stuff like that. And because of all the bush around, we were kind of worried that there were snakes living in there and it was just horrible. So um, we, around actually when the pandemic kicked off and when everybody started panicking about, um, you know, there being uh, an oversupply um, of investment properties and, you know, the tenants suddenly seemed to have some power in this situation, um, we decided we would kick up a fuss about it. So we asked the real estate agent and her response was, um, uh, you know, we, we've asked the owner about this several times and he says that if anyone doesn't like the trash pile, um, they should throw it into the gully behind the house, <laughs> um, which is like a beautiful little piece of Queensland bushland, bushland um, in the inner city. It's like you 
you can't throw trash in there and it's illegal and it would be terrible. So we were like, no, that's not okay. Um, and she said, she actually said, like, this is the first time I've ever had a real estate agent say, um, you should breach the owner, like send a breach notice um, because, you know, under the act they have a responsibility to um, keep common areas uh, clean and um, maintain them and he's not doing that. So we did that and we sent it off um, and then like a couple of days later uh, I get a text from my neighbour who um, there's another young couple living in the other half of the house and she was like, he's here <laughs> and he had turned up to the, to the um, house was like skulking in the garden waiting for one of us to come out because he knew that he was not legally allowed to come to the door. Um, so he was like, yeah, skulking down there. And then uh, one of our neighbours had gone down and he just started screaming. And we went out and um, my partner luckily had the presence of mind to um, record, like to set his phone on record before we went down. So he actually got a voice recording of the whole conversation and it was just bonkers. Like he was losing his shit. Um, and he was saying things like, um, if you, if you want this area to be clean, then we're going to clean it all up. I'm going to rip out your garden and we're going to get rid of all this lawn furniture. <laughs> Cause we'd put in a little, like a raised bed and we had like some lawn chairs and a fire pit, like normal stuff. Um, half of that had been there when we moved in anyway. And he's like, yeah, all right, you want it clean? We're going to make it clean. <laughs> like Just like deranged stuff. And, um, and then he, so he was saying like, I'm going to breach you. You breach me. I'm going to breach you. And we were like, oh, what are you going to breach us on? And he's like, having uh, furniture on the lawn. I did not approve this. And we were like, oh, you, we don't actually have to ask you for permission. And he's like, yes, you do. So we yelled at each other for like 20 minutes. And then finally he left and he was like, um, as, as he left, he was like, go and glue yourselves to the road. <laughs> he thought we were, <laughs> he thought we were so Extinction good. Rebellion people. Oh my because God, he'd, so he'd, funny. Yeah, he'd also seen our green signs. And so he um, obviously didn't like that either. Like he started, he was yelling about that as well. Um, and so we were like, well, no, nah, fuck this guy. So, uh, but then the, the real estate completely changed sides, um, unsurprisingly. She started saying, no, he's got every right to come to the property and yell at you. Um, he's got every right to breach you for having lawn furniture. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so she started saying, well, you know, if, if um, he clears up the rubbish, then you should take, you, you should clear away your, your furniture and your garden. You know, that's a fair compromise. And I was like, no, it's not. Like we have every right to have that stuff. And he's actually breached the act. So we went back and forth and I um, became like a, a real estate lawyer for a few days, was like researching legislation and got really into it. And eventually I sent her an email, which is, by the way, it's my advice for any tenant who finds himself um, with a real estate who's like threatening to, threatening that, or saying that you can't do something, just send an email saying, which part of our lease agreement or the relevant legislation have I breached? And uh, likely you will never hear back, which I never did. Um, so they backed down. But then uh, a couple of months later, our lease was expiring and we were like, all right, this is going to be interesting. Um, and we knew that if he had not offered us a lease renewal, we could have taken him to the tribunal for retaliatory eviction because uh, we had you know, asserted our rights as tenants, asked, you know, by breaching him and we had every right to breach him and the breach was correct. And as a result, we hadn't had our lease renewed. Um, but he didn't do that. He was quite uh, sneaky. So first he offered us a lease renewal uh, for, I think it was like $5 more per week. We were like, okay, sure. Because <laughs> we did want to stay in a house. We, we liked the house. And um, 
but then and they're like okay here's the new lease and it had these rules attached to it it was like this this microsoft word document like 64 rosecliffe street house rules and it was like um, you may not uh hang any type of banner or have a sign or um like display any signage in the property in a way that could be viewed from um outside you may not have um, like someone one of it was like you may not have a someone with an animal like over unless we give permission um you are not allowed uh, the most when uh, it was like yeah no no gardens or garden furniture allowed um unless we say you can but the most outrageous one for me was um was you're not allowed to hang washing <laughs> in a way that um can be seen from like outside the property or any other lot in the property uh, meanwhile, there's like a there's a hills hoist in the garden that we've all been using, obviously, um, since we moved in. And I said to the real estate, like, are you genuinely saying that um, we we can't hang? We have to email you for permission every time we want to hang washing out. And she just goes, "It's the owner's house, and he has every right to set whatever rules he wants." <laughs> Get so, fucked. That's bullshit. That's I'm so. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, swear. Oh, I... sweet. That's fucked. Like, like, what? Like, kind of a sick freak thinks that fucking shit. Like, oh god, it makes me so mad. And like, this is like me, like all the time, right? Like, I actually heard about your situation um, yeah. when I was working at Domain. I, um, I didn't put two and two together, but um, I, I heard about the asbestos thing, right? And I, um, yeah, I almost yeah, wrote yeah. a story about it. And like, that is like this. I didn't realize he wanted you to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> email was... every time you want to put your washing out. It's insane. <laughs> That's illegal, right? That must be illegal. Declan, Declan said, um, actually at the time I remember you saying, Deckers, uh, what you should do is just be like, okay. And then email them twice a week being like, just want to hang some washing out. Is that okay? And just drive them completely mad. <laughs> um, but I stand by this. I think people who want to set like dumb, arbitrary fucking things should be. Yeah. Um, but in the end we were just like, no, we are not signing this. This is outrageous. And they were like, okay, bye then. Um, and so then we ended up having to move. Um, and surprisingly, I will say like the one thing about, I, I, the whole thing left me with sort of mild PTSD. Like every time I got an email from the real estate, I would start shaking and just feel terrible. Like I couldn't concentrate for basically an hour afterwards. I was so nervous about it. Cause I actually don't like confrontation at all. Um, and uh, I was expecting a huge shit fight to get our bond back, but we actually got it all back without a fight, which was really weird. Um, which made me made me suspect that the real estate agent did secretly know that the landlord was in the wrong, but she wasn't obviously able to take his like our side. So she just you know when she saw the the place had been cleaned, she was like, yeah, recommend full bond refund. Um, but I will I will uh, say that the one silver lining of this terrible saga was that um, we bonded with our neighbours a lot. Like they were totally on board with hating landlords, um, real comrades, and we became we felt like quite um, united with them as renters, as, as a kind of like a common sort of interest or identity, which was an experience I'd never really had before. So I just read this email that my neighbor sent to me um, when we got the new lease with the house rules on it. And um, he said, I just want to say that we 100% have your back here. Can't imagine how angry you two must feel. It makes us want to leave our place on principle of not continuing to finance this old white land barren prick. I'm going to fly banners in the trees and the permanent flags on the washing line, grow weed all over the front yard and set fire to that pile of trash and breed white ants under the floorboards. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... Um, in the end, I'm, I'm quite glad that we left because he was the landlord was obviously just, um, yeah, like not uh, a rational human, um, but it was a super stressful experience. The 
Yeah, the insane, uh, like, com like petty self-righteousness, the petty tyrant phenomenon of just, like, it's so easy to see this guy just hunched over his computer, just, like, grinding his teeth, typing out the Word document, just like, I'll get them, this will show them. Do they House think rules. They, they think they can get me. <laughs> like, oh, I actually, I forgot to say it, just the one little cherry on the top then, is that... Um, a uh, friend of Flood, Mark, uh, who's been on before, was door knocking for Amy. And I think it was one of the final door knocks of the campaign. And ended up door knocking this guy who, li who lives in a, a, a huge fucking mansion in Highgate Hill. And uh, the guy had no idea that Mark knew us. Um, and he unprompted, just like over the course of the conversation, brought up, oh, these fucking tenants. Like they think they can have green signs up and they think they can have furniture. And they told me I wasn't allowed to come over. They really, like he was still mad about it like six months later. That's actually kind of hilarious. Eh? The fact that he like brought it up unprompted is so good. And then it also tells you what he actually thinks of it too. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. We actually saw him in Aldi yesterday. <laughs> like we actually have run into him twice, um, which is kind of uh, uncomfortable, but we just blanked each other. <laughs> I had the same, I didn't think I had like much of a like, like horror story to tell because like, Obviously, I've had a shitty time renting, but in a relatively normal way. But the rules thing is exactly what's happened at the the house I'm currently in, where for, like, our, our first year of lease, he's, like, at one stage, we were like, oh, yeah. like, he just mentioned verbally, like, oh, well, like, I, um, I do, like, intend on, like, renovating the, like, garage, which is, like, kind of, again, really similar to yours, like, runs onto a big, like, big, beautiful, like, Brisbane gully, best city on earth. Um, but... Instead of like renovating it, he just parked a boat in it like half halfway through the year, and we were like, "Oh, that's kind of crap." Like, like we've been using that. It like it, it is our garage. We do pay you like over three grand a month. Like we should be able to like use the garage. It's the only covered outdoor space. It's quite useful. Um, and he was like, "No, no, 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 no." Um, and it turned it like it turned into like a bit of an argy bargy and a bit of a conflict. But when it came to like renewing our lease. Like he had this like big drawn on area of places which are like now excluded from like, the <laughs> lease. Like the the difference here is that like this guy owns our house, owns next door, which is where he lives, and owns the real estate company we're renting for. Um, so there's nothing you can really do about that. F for me, like it's not so much a horror story, but seeing the boat turn into like a $120,000 Mercedes-Benz four-wheel drive and just know where your rent is going every fortnight was deeply, deeply frustrating and, and enraging. Like it, it just, it is so infuriating watching, watching your money just disappear. And then you get accused as a communist of being someone who wants to appropriate the wealth of others. And it's like, motherfucker, I will show you where wealth is being appropriated right now. It's right there. I'll point at it. Yeah, something about like the drawn on area is so tickling to me. <laughs> it's like it's the same vibes, right? Of like someone just hunched over a computer or a desk just being like, Yes, and there and there and there. <laughs> and you just you know he fancies himself like an incredible self made man because he used to be a carpenter and then he worked in law for a while and now he owns a real estate business. I was like, Oh, you absolute loser. Off air you have to tell me who this is, just quietly. <laughs> um like I I do think that these people are like you can't um, underrate how genuinely psychologically taxing this is to deal with that specific mindset, which is being consciously created. Um, there's a, a quote I'm going to read now, and you're going to find out uh, who said this quote later in the episode. 
um, which is uh, economics is the method. The object is to change the soul. Um, that's a quote by a, an influential political figure. Um, My bet is on Wayne Swan. Um, that is incorrect. But yeah, like this is so. This is. I'm going to talk about this later. But I, I think there has been a political project around housing designed to make people into these kind of petty tyrants, designed to oh, actually. Are we going to talk about this later or now? I reckon this is totally like I 100% with you. Like that's 100% like deliberate housing policy in Australia has been to do that for ooh, about 60 years, 70 years now. Um, well, I thought, yeah, I thought we could talk a bit now, like. I think we wanted to um, ask Jim a bit about, uh, just like a bit about um, working at Domain and like what your take is on the Australian housing market and just like what it's doing at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I also don't really have a bad landlord story. I'm un- <laughs> upsettingly, I've only had good landlords so far or, you know, at least like our neutral ones. Uh, in the housing market, yeah, that's that's another one that's, um, it's very clear um, when you sort of look at the way uh, government policy works is that they they all they want is for the house prices to keep going up and it's it's sort of at the cost of um, you know people like us um, who you know don't own property and, and and might not for decades if at all um, yeah I think uh, part of like the problem with it is that is like every time it looks like it might slow down um, particularly the fact like you know particularly given that we're typically ruled by people who believe in the free market. Um, you know, people, the, the government intercedes, or, you know, they say they believe in the free market, but they, they probably don't really. The government sort of intercedes and prevents it from from going down in any real way. So, like, even with, um, you know, the coronavirus, um, like, you know, pandemic, like, when it looks like things would actually go bad again uh, for property, the, uh, the the federal government, you know, was sort of like saying like, yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, make home builder, which should, you know, um, you know, stimulate, you know, the property and construction sector. We're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, give, uh, tenants, um, you know, or, you know, people who are, you know, out of work money so they can continue to keep paying their rent. Um, and they didn't necessarily say this should go towards your rent when they're talking about job seeker and job keeper, but, um, it, it really had the effect of putting more money in, uh, land landlords pockets because they didn't sort of match that policy uh, with a, a, a measure to prevent landlords from extracting as much money from their tenants as possible. And that was that was very deliberate because they could have done it. They did it with commercial properties, but they didn't do it with residential tenancy properties. So um, in my eyes, the, the the housing policy in Australia is always all, is geared towards housing prices going up all the time, um, despite, you know, their stated sort of uh, values of, uh, you know, free market and letting, um, you know, financial markets sort of like do their thing. Um, and, you know, that's, that's created this underclass that which, which we are a part of, you know, the, the non-property class and I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a shame because like you know in some some cities it's not so bad in Brisbane it's not the worst thing in the world it's not quite as bad as Sydney or Melbourne but in Sydney and, and Melbourne the only people who are buying houses are people who have either saved for 10 years or people who have generational wealth and you know like some people might be able to access that but it also <laughs> requires um, people you love dying so it's always a, a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tough one and so what do you reckon are like the some of the economic and social impacts of that then of having basically an entire generation locked out of the housing market? Ooh, um, look, it all seems kind of fine now, right? Um, at this stage. And I think this is the, the reason why nothing has really changed uh, because even something that um, 
that could have and I, I i i'm saying this realizing that like you know not everyone it's not fine for everyone um but we're not experiencing like waves and waves of homelessness right or you know um or things that are sort of like um you know we're not quite at the pointy end of a crisis yet it's like a, it's a burgeoning crisis it's on the way to becoming you know uh almost a, like a societally changing problem but it's just not there yet and every time it looks like it's going to get bad uh renters or you know people who are struggling to access housing they're always thrown a little bit of a bone to sort of keep them um you know at this like you know how like when you like does everyone here drive manuals you know like a manual car works yes. you like you like the friction point right where like we're constantly at this friction point we're not really uh, you know we're not really getting to this point where everything is going to go bad but this sort of like it we flirt with it all the time and every single time it does they they sort of they push their foot down on the clutch a little bit more just to prevent it and I think that is like a part of the problem why um, we haven't really seen like this massive, you know, economic and, um, and uh, you know, social upheaval because of the housing market. Um, it, it looks like it may get there at some point, but every time, single time it does, like something else, like, you know, just changes marginally to fix that. But that being said, the, the economic um, implications are that, um, you know, when we're spending all our money on rent, we're not putting money back into the economy. And it's not going to landlords' pockets either because most landlords are natively geared. It's actually going back into the banks so they can like generate more and more money for their shareholders. It's it's like this just big like I mean it's like a fucking Ponzi scheme, right? Like everyone always always says this, but it's that's what it is. Like all the landlords who, you know, are acting like they're our enemies are also being sucked into the same scheme where they, you know, they're they're being pushed into this friction point and whether or not their friction point is like, you know, actually giving a fuck about the humans who live in their houses. Like, you know, they're still being pushed into discomfort constantly by this like uh this this rat race of a, you know, economy and property market that we have. Um so yeah, it is a drag on the economy to have so much money tied up in debt like most economists um despite being like you know neoliberal like <laughs> ghouls will agree um that it is not a, a good thing to for people to have so much debt and for it to be so tied up into property um and yeah it's like it, it sort of prevents us from you know like people from accessing um you know having enough money to get things that they want or you know probably need it's like we have um you know like fucking um, healthcare here otherwise we'd um probably all be like america in the middle of a plague and not actually <laughs> being able to afford healthcare when we need it but yeah so that's my my rant i think it's like it's really interesting because you were talking about what they were doing in in terms of like propping up the housing market this time around and most of my research for this was was a book that was published in like 2011 2012 so obviously the the like the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8 which was spurred by a housing market crash in the states was like really central to the way that they were talking about what was happening in the Australian housing market then. And they were talking about, you know, the Rudd government at that time, like raising, like giving, I think even tripling like the first home buyers what's or builders the, grant um, and things like this. Book? Book's called Australia's Unintended Cities. And it's a really good, like, like chapter by chapter, like different, like different, like academics, like just describing the Australian housing market. I think like f for me, the really major takeaways were that, Australia's housing market is is super super different to to like the US or the UK where it genuinely is like undersupplied in terms of housing which I don't know I've definitely like lied to heaps of people because I keep telling people that like look it's you know that's what they say it's that it's that it's oversupplied but that's not true the the thing is that it's oversupplied with luxury housing um and it's undersupplied with affordable housing which is like not technically a lie but I think 
the way Australia's housing market has has like historically functioned, and this goes back to what you were saying before, like early colonization, is that they're huge land grants, like just like giving land away really, really, really quickly. Um, and I think they even started making like really early on started having to put in like different laws and things to stop housing speculation. Um, I think I read somewhere that was 1812 was the first kind of proclamation being like, look, if you're given a huge bunch of land, you can't on sell that for a decade or whatever the, the law was at the time. So like speculative land, land grabbing was, was a problem like very, very early on in the, in the colony. Um, and that still kind of functions today. Um, but what that's meant is that there's hasn't been like you haven't needed to be a builder of housing to be to be like in the housing market like where the money's really made is getting big bunches of land subdividing it and then reselling that whereas in the US or the UK or Ireland in particular it's been about like actually building land so builders and developers generally speaking are connected whereas in Australia developers just buy and sub like just buy land, subs, um, subdivide, and then on sell the property to contract builders. So we don't actually have this like speculative housing building um, so much as as other places. I thought that was a really interesting kind of like difference in the Australian housing market. So do you think that accelerates it, or do you think that that um, uh, slows it down, or, or what is the effect that it has? Um, <laughs> not my podcast, I'm asking questions, but what's the effect that that has on the um, on how our property market works? Well, I guess they were really making the argument that it's that it's done a really like good job of actually like preventing the Australian property market from crashing during the during the GFC because that there isn't this oversupply of housing and like people can't like move out of the houses that they're in and go and move into other houses that already exist because those houses haven't been built. Um, so I I guess it's it's hard to know like what it's like what its deliberate material effects are, but it does mean that like most development in Australia happens in the outer suburbs, and we're talking about like the generational wealth disparity um, to do with the housing market in Australia, and that's super super distinct. Um, and you know all the different like graphs and evidence of it like really point to this massive massive like gap between people under about thirty thirty five and and people over that in terms of their their actual like wealth that they possess. Um, but the other really massive massive gap is is between like the inner and the outer suburbs where because we keep going further and further out um, with these like opening up of of land for developers to sub, sub, subdivide, um, people who are living further and further away from from the city d don't get any of the real estate benefits of the the growing kind of cost of housing because once you get past a certain point in terms of distance from the city, the the values just don't go up in the same way because there are no jobs, there are no services. Um, the the inbuilt costs of living out there in terms of petrol and et cetera, et cetera, are really, really significant. And I think that's, there's this, there's a really big generational divide, which I think we'll all experience, but generally as like, as inner city young people, that's how we'll experience it. But I think there's a huge amount of spatial divide as well between the outer sub suburbs and inner suburbs in capital cities. And then regional Australia is something that I you know, can't pretend to speak to with any sort of I mean, regional Australia is just like dying on the vine, isn't it? Like it's um, it's been abandoned. This is probably an aside to the housing conversation, but it's been in, almost entirely abandoned by by governments and and, and industries. 
Um, but in the inner cities, and you're, you're correctly identifying that, um, that there is a, a divide between the inner and outer suburbs. And once you get to the um, outer suburbs, again, this is something that um, I don't think we've quite reached breaking point at yet, and maybe something will change before it gets really bad. But, you know, there there is this potential for compounding. Um, it's it's not even quite poverty, but it, it may become poverty because, you know, you, you know, people like us may have to move to um, outer suburbs to get a house if we actually want one. Um, and you write about like, you know, the cost of fuel and everything like that. It, it's sort of like it, it will keep dragging you down and you won't be able to participate in the same way. Um, but I just don't think at this point that the average person who lives in these areas um, feels that quite as much. Um, I, I just don't think it's quite at the point where it's, um, you know, at breaking point. But, you know, these people do know it. They understand it. But it's just um, uh, it's it's bearable. You know, and, um, and I think that's um, goes back to what I was saying about these friction points, right? Is that um, people are sort of like, you know, they let things go until it gets too until it gets too bad to ignore, and um, you know, in the meanwhile, like people will um, families and Thai families, um, you know, and, and and groups of people who live in these areas will struggle to sort of raise themselves out of that. I mean, not that they they should aspire to um you know have something different to what they have or what they want you know you should be able to live comfortably wherever it is that you live but the way our our cities and this is probably something you would have gotten from the unintended cities um you know like the way our cities sort of just like came to be um you know concentrate that um that benefit in the inner cities and no one's doing anything to really um distribute that or fix that and i think that's probably the the core of the the problem there it's um again like it's bad. You you know you can't you know live your life as fully as um, someone who lives in the the inner city. Um, but that's not to say that um you know it's it's bad to live out in the in the sort of the fringe areas either. Do you, is, how is the mood in like I, I, when did you leave Domain? It was a little while ago. How is the mood in like institutional real estate re a housing crash in Australia? Because like I feel like it's been on the cards and like. I feel like every single year I've like told a friend, look, now's not the year to buy a house, you know? <laughs> um, look, man, uh, they are all Kool-Aid drinkers, I would say. Um, I don't think there's anyone who actually, um, you know, when it goes bad, it gets real bad. You know, like they're, like all the real estate agents, you can tell they fucking hate life. They like, they don't want to like, you know, they don't want to talk to you. They'll try to avoid like, you know, speaking to the media and everything they say is like always like tinged with upside. Like, you know, it's like that joke that real estate agents are just relentlessly positive all the time. But um, as soon as, um, you know, and, and actually, you know what, they do tend to like, they tend to like the, the, the nicer, the smarter ones, they, they recriminate a little bit, you know, they, they sit there and think, oh, like you know this wasn't so good you know like um we, we could do better here or there you know like this is not necessarily um we need to be more careful about these things but as soon as um you know like it starts getting good again like they just forget you know it's like every single time we forget the lessons and like um you know it, it might seem that way because like everyone starts cheering like oh the property market's going up again like you know if you only read the headlines or you know you're not that um you know invested in in what's going on but or, or anyone actually um who just reads it probably doesn't get quite the full picture like like someone like i would who talks to real estate agents constantly or talked to real estate agents constantly thank god but um the the way they act when when things starts getting good start going good again they're just like yeah you got to buy now you should buy now like now's the time to buy everything everything's like you know they, it's like they forget that like you know they were just selling houses for people who had you know lost money um, because the housing market took a dip and the bank was like you know like knock 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 like you need to like <laughs> you need to get out and sell your house um, 
yeah it's a it's it's a, a really weird environment to be in because it's this constant like um it's like it's like everyone has amnesia every time the the, the line starts going up what happened to housing i know you've done you did a bit of this like preparing for this matt like what happened like when like how did housing just like start going up so much when did it separate from wages so badly um yeah i, I did do a bit of research um in fact, so that's convenient. So it started in the 80s. Um, and there's a book out now, it's a new book from the University of Sydney called The Asset Economy, which I haven't read, but I've read um, bits and pieces from, um, which paints this picture of, okay, well, this is basically uh, a part of the neoliberal project was to begin to separate um housing and assets and ownership from wages and to have this economy that's increasingly defined by um like what you own is the primary source of profit um so it's been happening pretty consistently since the 1980s that uh wages have been fairly flat and stagnant but housing prices have gone up and a lot of um Wealth has gone into like the the financial system has was massively deregulated then has been becoming much more active ever since, um, and so I want to talk a little bit about on um, what I think is the the really key example of this um, the what what I always think of as one of the um, like the critical moments of uh, the neoliberal turn in the eighties which is a little thing called right to buy. Um, and so this this happened in the United Kingdom. Uh, the backstory is that uh, in the 40s, after uh, the war, the Labour government of Clement Attlee um, saw that all of these houses had been demolished um, and had this like working class movement behind them and was like, all oh, right, well, we're going to build a fuckload of social homes. And that was the, the basis for the UK's housing stock for the next few decades. Um, was everyone living in social homes and like voting to defend these social homes and what happened was so the conservatives figured out pretty quickly that like fuck like not only does this give something to poor people which we're against but it also creates labor voters because they're all they have a material stake in the social homes which creates a culture of solidarity and um of you know they have a they have a stake in the success of a labor government basically um and so they figured out uh, i think in the 50s there was a tory prime minister who anthony eden who started talking about the concept of a uh, property owning democracy um yeah uh, a nationwide property owning democracy where they started saying okay what do we need to do then in order to create more voters for the tories is we need to get as many people owning their own homes as possible because we know that people who own their own homes they've got a material stake in our success um and when this really kicked off and uh here's uh this is where you find out uh, this is the author of that quote from before was of course under margaret thatcher who i think is one of the best examples of what i was talking about that kind of really petty, shriveled, um, just insanely small-minded malevolence of the Conservative Party. I love like, that um, Declan's pick was Wayne Swan. <laughs> like, yeah. they're yeah. Um, pretty close together, clearly. Basically, yeah. Um, a, my my favourite joke about Margaret Thatcher is um, the worst thing 
Well, the the only bad thing about pissing on Margaret Thatcher's grave is that you eventually run out of piss. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to say the gender-neutral bath- bathroom one, which is like absolutely brilliant and remember that old scottish lady who was like um i want to like stick a stake through her heart and a garage around her neck so she can't come back on the day she died (laughs) (laughs) too bad my favorite too bad too bad my favorite margaret this is going off topic i promise i'll let you get back to housing soon matt um but my favorite bit of sort of margaret thatcher law was um i don't know if anyone else saw this but a few years ago um you know those like inspirational memes that float around like your aunt's Facebook page and it's like a picture of a sunset with something, an inspirational slogan on it. Um, somehow uh, the IRA's warning to Margaret Thatcher, which is um, you have to be lucky every time. We only have to be lucky once when they yeah. were threatening to blow her up and trying Fucking to. Um, like that's Yeah, just it's incredible. But it got turned into one of those inspirational memes and people were sharing it around quite earnestly um all this text on like a background of a mountain or something it was, it was yes actually... yes it was attributed to margaret thatcher as well yeah that's right all right i i've just realized i have the image for this episode so anyway matt carry on um yeah there's uh i've been reading a lot about thatcher and thatcherism lately and there's a great old piece by angela carter called masochism for the masses where she refers to Thatcher as the the mad woman rattling around in the Tory attic, who has finally been uh, let out and unleashed on an unsuspecting public. Um, but yeah, like a, a, a truly evil person and one of the great villains of the 20th century. But yeah, um, so what she did was she had a policy called right to buy, which was uh, basically if you're a tenant living in social housing, you have the right to buy the house that you live in and at a very steep discount, much less than the house is actually worth. Um, and then that's it, like that's your house. Um, and you'll get it cheaply. And then in theory, the money was supposed to go to building more social housing, but obviously like not actually, like that was not really part of the plan because what this was for, um, as I said, economics is the method, the object is to change the soul. The point was to create a generation of people um, who were these like small scale capitalists who all of a sudden had uh, owned property, uh, had a stake in the property market. Um, And there was also the other thing that uh, she did was massively deregulate the banks. And I think the, um, I want to say building societies, although I'm not totally sure what that is, but uh, that's definitely you, a, a term that British people like pretty to much, use. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, I'm like I'm just realizing now that that's probably why they're called that. But yeah, like what this meant was that um, basically people started borrowing money to buy homes, like way more than they used to. Like it used to be, they just sort of did uh, you know investments into businesses and things. That was the point where like oh, like you take out a mortgage to own a home and you can actually get much cheaper credit than you could in the past. Um, and that that's the point where that really uh, took off and we started having this basically debt-fueled property bubble. And because people had a stake in it, like the, econo- like the economy was never that good under Thatcher and, you know, eventually she did go and like Tony Blair got in. Um, but... At that stage, it was like, well, people now have a stake in the property market. People expect this influx of uh, cheap credit. People really 
want that to continue like and at the time that was a very popular policy which was you know it was designed to be and like to some extent you can understand why because like oh like, I, I get to own a thing for cheap why wouldn't i want that but it also obviously what it meant was that the uk stock of social housing was decimated and uh, remains decimated to this day and like no more was built and so it meant that this is where I think the, the generational asset comes in, because what it meant was that these people were locked into um, voting conservative, basically, for, like, you know, decades after the fact, and that, like, Labour governments had to appeal the, to these people to get into power, which meant that Labour governments also had to, like, abandon socialism and become neoliberalism, neoliberal in their own way. Um, and so that was a really huge component of what the neoliberal project actually was um and i don't know exactly how it went in australia and presumably something similar but also probably quite different happened um but it, i i think that quote economics is the method the object is to change the soul really gets at the sense of like what this was and how it worked the uh, the way that financialization was designed to infect every aspect of someone's life and actually change them into the kind of like warped crabbed little person who's like maniacally fixated on their own property and actually thinks that that makes them better than everyone else like there's a kind of like yeah but like basically i think this is the process like this is where we get these landlords and like this is a process by which the whole world effectively was made over in margaret thatcher's image and it's like it's not only landlords it's also tenants right like I think one yeah. of the things I wanted to talk about, which um, I think you've just answered quite well, is why our rent is so disorganized as a class. Like, because, you know, this is a common material condition that uh, a lot of especially young, um, precariously employed, mid to low income people share. And as we touched on earlier in the show, uh, it's, you know, for people of our generation, it's basically all of us. And it affects our lives in very, very real ways um, uh, in the day to day. Um, but there's no real renter organization. And I think any attempt, at least in Brisbane, to create a tenants union or um, a sort of a radical tenants organization has kind of sputtered out a bit. Um, and, yeah, it's it's kind of – it's sad to me because the experience I mentioned before when our neighbours um, – uh, and and us, we all had the same experience, and we were because we we uh, lodged the breach notice together. We were co co breaches, um, and so he was turning up to yell at, at all of us, and we were like emailing back and forth, and it was like kind of exciting just to feel um, that sense of solidarity. And we all went down to the garden to yell at them together, um, <laughs> and that was nice. Like I want more of that. Yeah, I, like I do think it is really interesting that Australia doesn't have a really strong like organized tenants movement. And I think this goes back to to some of the unique things that we were talking about the Australian like housing market before about it it has always been quite individually owned and there's a lot of contract building. So there haven't been like land well not land is a really great mix of large and land. There haven't been large landholders um and tenant like large landlords. So most most people are renting from just one individual. Um, I think it's now it's it's actually increased over the last like five ten years, but it's I think about twenty percent of Australian households own investment property now. So we don't have this in the UK or in or in like the US in particular. There's a lot of landlords who own like 
tenement blocks and things like this. So it's quite easy to get organized with your neighbors to fight the same enemy. Whereas we don't have this like obvious kind of like, but who are we doing it versus is, is the question. Like it's, it's much harder to get organized when there's no obvious and apparent like enemy. I remember talking about wanting to do a rent strike at some point and all I could really think of it doing was bringing about the housing crash and that's not really good and actually like it hurts more people than than it favors so it's that's my thoughts on it anyway i'd argue if you did try to bring about a housing crash the um, government would actually intervene and try to prevent that but yeah um yeah that's the that's the other thing right there's kind of the legacy of um the thatcher and of like the neoliberal turn in housing is that yeah, governments have to protect the housing market at all costs. And like uh, the asset economy, I think, speaks pretty well on this, um, is that voters now expect that. Like voters, eat because enough people have a personal stake in the housing market, um, and you know, certainly the people who are most powerful in our society have the biggest stake. Like even though it's clearly this uh, destructive process where we're kind of going into more and more debt for it and everyone knows it's a house of cards, but we have to kind of, yeah, we have to hit that um, uh, moment of friction. Like we have to kind of keep just like dancing on this razor's edge or whatever, because that's what the political constituencies want. I think it would be a remiss of Floodcast to not mention that in Australia that it was the Labor Party who did this. Um, yep. So it was. Yes, it, that's our slogan. It's the Labor Party who did this. <laughs> Good slogan. In the in the eighties, it was um it was the Hawke Keating government that um that that did like a big like they just got like a big white paper done into like what what's happening in the Australian banking and financial sector and decided that having um, two separated banks, one that can only do mortgages and only lend to people who like have have mortgages with that bank kind of thing, and another one that deals with businesses and those both of those being tightly regulated is in fact completely not good. What we should do is completely like just throw the gates open and allow particularly foreign capital and particularly mortgage brokers um, and other like other kind of like financial financialized aspects of housing to, to like come storming into Australia. And in Australia, at least that you can, you can see it quite clearly on grass. That's the moment that wages and wages and house prices just completely separate. Um, as it turns out, like bidding up the cost of housing is insanely good for banks. They absolutely love that. Um, they want everyone to continue to bid up the cost of housing. And it's, it's really great that that's what's happening. I think uh, another thing as well to mention is that um, you know this was like a uh, the like the the financialization of housing as well was a, a really like sort of big moment. I mean, sorry if you've already mentioned it, I'm a little bit drunk, so please forgive me. Um, but the the way like uh, they sort of allowed that to happen um, was was something as well that that sort of like caused this problem. It's something that I find um, a lot of housing academics sort of like look back on um, very like, you know, poorly as well, allowing it to become a commodity and allowing it to become like, a, you know, the, the way to build wealth um, was a sort of a major issue. And um, over, I think the, um, the from the 50s to the 70s, they sort of um, also did try to encourage, I think it might've been Menzies. I'm not really, um, I'm not really, uh, what's the word? 
uh, across this, um, and I should have um, researched it a bit. But um, you know, Menzies, I think it was, or like one of those um, one of those uh, prime ministers, sort of encouraged people to get into the housing market. You know, because like in the fifties, like not a lot of people actually owned houses. It was it was kind of hard to um, you know hard to get one, so they 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 lowered the barriers a bit, and it was an intentional strategy to get people into houses, so then they would become Tories, which is similar to like um, what Margaret Thatcher did. But we were also doing that here um, a little bit um, earlier on, and um, you know, sort of from there, um, from there, that sort of laid the groundwork for that that financialization, the the commodification of housing to really sort of take hold. And um, I know, like the Labor Party did this was <laughs> is your um is your uh, what's the word slogan, but it's it, it has been sort of a, a strategy for a long time to get more and more people into housing. And you know, at, to begin with, it, it probably was like a, a little bit of an egalitarian idea, um, but it it also had the effect of sort of cementing the the neoliberal values. I would say. What what do we do about housing then? Like, because it, it does seem so so difficult. Like, I can't really imagine. Like, I can imagine the crash happening at any moment. But I've been saying that for so long now, and I'm starting to get a little bit tired of like economic like apocalypse edging. Like, where what's the go? Um, I think um, like there is probably nothing that can be done until there's a crisis, um, and then we need to sort of like fight our way out of it. And then that's probably the point at which. Um, it will become uh, like easy to do something. I mean, you know, maybe we could um, like a, a very broad based like tenancy uh, movement that you sort of were um, like flirting with the idea of before, like that that could work. But again, like um, I, it's hard to see a clear path for um, collective action in Australia today, um, just because um, you know everything is so geared against you. Not only is um, public opinion geared against you, but the the entire institution. Um, which you're trying to appeal to is, is geared against you as well. So yeah, maybe an, another big crisis. I mean, like the coronavirus seemed like the moment, but um, I'm sure there will be many more in the future. Um, Jim, what do you reckon about social housing? Because as I recall, um, part of the Greens platform in the election we just had was to build uh, just some incredibly huge number of social homes. I reckon it's important to call it public like public homes because social yeah, homes is what what Dan Andrews is doing and it's this like yeah. it's this awful dog shit privatizing by stealth kind of thing and the whole like the the vultures like swinging around the social housing pie like that that the Andrews has just set up is is really like nerve-wracking and you can see how it 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 very much is the solution of of a neoliberal kind of government and i, I think that's why the greens platform of public housing is actually good is that it it becomes owned, like it, it is owned by by the public and it's not something that these NGOs who get these massive salaries and like get paid by the government to do the work of managing government housing that the government's built, like it just, it's all these extra, like all these extra middlemen and it fits, it fits in exactly with what the, the neoliberal paradigm is, which is creating a market for a, for a social, like a market that solves the social problem as opposed to just putting money into solving the social problem. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, social housing, yes, like it's good. It's better than nothing. But uh, the fact that it's corporatized is, um, yeah, it's it's it fucking sucks. Like, um, like I don't think that they do bad work. I'm glad that they're doing the work. But the fact that it is corporatized causes a lot of problems. And they also are then dependent um, on the government. I mean, like, you know, like public housing is also dependent on the, you know, the government of the day. Like it's not perfect either. And like, we can clearly see that because it's been neglected for so, so badly and so long um, in, in every state around the, the country. 
but uh, yeah, like the fact, like the fact of the matter is, like un- unless, like it doesn't matter if it's social or public housing, like unless the government um, of the day uh, has some sort of like you know desire to actually you know treat um, treat it with the respect and it deserves and needs it's not really going to like solve the problem because they, they don't really have an interest in solving the problem. They have an interest in, you know, stimulating the economy and, um, uh, and making people shut up. Basically, those are the only two real um, goals that they, they had. Um, the Victoria, you know, appears to me to have had when they were, um, when they were announcing the social housing spend and by doing like, you know, the vast majority of it, all but a thousand homes are going to be all but a thousand of twelve thousand homes are going to be um, pub, uh, social housing. That just says to me that they've completely sort of taken their hands off the wheel and just sort of let it happen. And they can say, you know, this is good. We're happy. Like everyone's happy. We've done it because uh, for so long everyone's been sort of confusing social and public housing between the two. But if you actually dig into the numbers, they're only really replacing. I don't think there's any net gain of public housing. Um, it's only, uh, what's the word, uh, they're replacing 1,100s, uh, public housing, um, buildings, uh, or, you know, dwellings, sorry, with, um, uh, 1,100. So, um, yeah. What's the, what is the difference between social and public housing? So, so sorry. Some um, social housing is like, it's run by non-for-profits, right? Or it's run by some sort of like, you know, NGO that's like funded by the government. Whereas public housing is directly run by the housing department. Um, you know, you pay your rent to the housing department, rah, 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 like all that sort of stuff. And, you know, like the two, the two things, um, you can argue the efficacy of each, um, but I, I genuinely think that the um, it's just a, another layer of um, you know corporations in our daily life that is probably unnecessary for the um, the running of um, the world. Yeah, NGOs are like a problem in their own right. Hey. Um, yeah, we need to do an NGO episode. Yeah, I was just thinking that thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even um, dealing with NGOs down here, though, like, um, you know, I've found that they uh, are unwilling to criticize the government because that's where their, their funding comes from. And that's, um, yeah, it's, it's just government control, courtocracy, court something. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I have a, a lot to say on this and I haven't even had that much to do with NGOs. But um, I know uh, Callum, um, who has been on a few episodes, but uh, he wrote an, an, an article for us a few years ago about just the the disgraceful state of environmental NGOs in particular who um, seem to produce scorecards every election where they find ways to give the Labour Party a nice big tick um, because they want a seat at the table in the next government, basically. Like, it's just craven shit. Um, we're coming up on time, probably. Um, I was going to read the, the, listener, the listener horror stories um, just to come full circle as a last thing, unless anyone wants to raise a final substantive point. Um, the only other thing I just wanted to say is that the thing that i've been thinking about and i have been thinking about that line uh the economics is the method the object is to change the soul um to me that is while thatcher obviously used that power for evil um to me i'm thinking well okay that does give us a sense of what our project should be at least a starting point because we are saying like in terms of you know, building socialism, uh, essentially, we've got to start thinking about like, yeah, well, how do we give people both a, a material and an ideological stake in what we're trying to do? Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I was, when you were saying it before, I was going to jump in and just say like, it, it just shows the difference in ambition between the right and the left where like yeah. 
the left are so afraid and so namby-pamby about saying, hey, we want to do things that'll change the world and what we think is good. Whereas the right are more than happy to do that. It's just that they're wrong, like, and they represent the interests of the ruling class. And we've we've got to get much, much, like, bullshier, I guess, on being like, no, what we want to do is good and it will change the way that people exist in the world and form relationships with their communities and build their, the, their ideology. I've said this for, for a long time now, actually, that the, the difference is, like, you know, that they win. Uh, they're like, the left doesn't. And I think what the, the left, left should winning. be doing... Sorry, what was that? I was just saying uh, the left actually hates winning and seems, yeah, like, yeah. actively afraid of pursuing winning as a strategy. Exactly, yeah. And, like, that that's part of the problem. And I think uh, learning from Thatcher um, in that sense is not necessarily a bad thing to do because uh, she was incredibly um, effective, you know? Like, uh, what she's done has echoed around the globe for, for years and years. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the like, the where I'm, like, trying to go with this is that... Um, I think uh, there are like, you know, options to uh, improve people's material conditions within um, within society uh, so that they, they do take more of an active interest in um, sort of like, you know, or their, their soul changes. So um, so then they are they are more willing to sort of, you know, uh, take further steps along that that route. Uh, and I think um, just housing is just probably not one of those places where uh, it's it, it's super easy to do so. Um, you know, by we can see the effects of um, you know trying to democratize or sort of put housing into the hands of um, people. That's sort of the, the the point I was trying, like you know, in a garbled way, trying to make before was that um, you know while it was uh, you know seen as a social good at the time, and it probably was to have everyone in their houses. It's created this environment where um, you know the the financialization of housing has um, sort of enabled people to um, or has enabled this um this this changing of the soul, right? Um, I, th- I think the areas in which um you know you would have to make those inroads are probably within um you know workplaces first you know like um employee owned um companies are, are probably you know maybe the first step in um sort of like socializing people to to accept um uh controlling their own destinies rather than letting a capitalist do it i'm really interested you say that because i i think almost exactly the opposite like i think one of the the really important things and why i think housing is really good like first demand to struggle for is more than any other thing it changes your ability to struggle in other aspects of your life so you know it's so much easier to go on strike at work if you're not if you've not got a mortgage or if you've you know if if you know you've got a secure place to have a meeting or to have a meal the the difference in the way that you can participate in other parts of social life is so different and i think that's that's why i think the left should almost orient towards housing in a much much more significant way than we currently do yeah, yeah I think that's a very good point oh yeah. sorry yeah, oh, no. I, I was. I agree as well. Like, I was just thinking about um, this book that I, I wrote an article on a while ago um, called Bogliamo which is about the strike um, in the Fiat factory in, I think, 1960s Italy. And uh, it was a big, big strike. Um, and uh, then they sort of started to – one of the things that happened was then, yeah, the workers couldn't pay rent, obviously. Um, but then they started a rent strike as well because they were like, oh, shit, strikes, they work. Like we can, you know, I think the line in the book is like they realized they were workers everywhere, like not just in the factory, but everywhere. So, yeah, that's just to say I kind of agree with that point. I think the um, the issue that I sort of see is that I can't see a path 
you know, like for me, like, you know, me seeing a path is not the be all end all, but like, you know, it's my opinion, right? So like for me, like not being able to see a path um, out of the housing quagmire that like all of us find ourselves in is kind of the problem. I can see paths in um, sort of creating class consciousness and other aspects of our lives. Um, whereas like within housing, it, it sort of seems almost too hard. And that, and that does go to that sort of that, that thing you were raising before of, uh, you know, everyone having a different landlord. Uh, we've already had our experience, um, you know, um, alienated and splintered by, um, you know, deliberate government policies. So from there, um, I think we should look for things that are probably slightly uh, more cohesive to seek power rather than um, rather than sort of like, you know, trying to win a fight against like a, a million uh, mum, you know, mum and dad in, um, in quotes, um, investors who, uh, you know, probably also don't really understand the class dynamics. Yeah, I, I super agree. And I guess, like, I, if, if I had a strategy to do it, I'd go do it. But um, but I, I think there's real opportunity in that, like, even though we've all got a different landlord, we've, we've still all got the same bank, and even our landlord has the same bank. And I think if we can, if we can find a way of reconstituting who our class enemies are, because generally, like, yeah, like, Although these people are landlords, they are still part of a of a broadly constituted working class, which has just been fragmented really seriously as as a big political project. But if we can find a way of bringing these people into the fold, then I think we there is real room for for opportunity there. But it is hard to it, it is hard to see how a strategy toward that actually plays out. I love this. We're approaching synthesis. <laughs> like that's a like a really good point because like that's something I was whinging about on Twitter not long ago as well when I was still at Domain was that um, people don't see landlords as um because they own property they don't see them quite as um you know a, a part of the same class but without your paycheck and without their paycheck they would go broke as well which is um you know to me sort of makes them seem like um they are slightly more precarious than they actually would like to think and i think from there you're right like building class solidarity with landlords would be a helpful way to sort of um you know like fracture fracture that 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 um that issue that um you know, sort of like break that, um, break this issue open, I guess. But um, that seems almost impossible uh, given landlord brain and its uh, prevalence in our society. I have to say, I didn't think this episode was going to end on the note of um, build class solidarity with your landlord, but I'm quite pleased. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm I, deeply, deeply ashamed. <laughs> no, I think it's good. It's, it, you know, we aim for the unexpected here on Flood. Um, Usually we just say the Labour Party did it and move on. Um, but I think before we go, I do want to get to those listener horror stories that I mentioned because um, they, you know, our listeners sent them in um, and I would like to read them. So I'm just going to go through these um, one by one. So Charlotte said, uh, inspected in an apartment that looked great. When, when we moved in less than a week later, we saw a giant mold patch on the ceiling that was absolutely not there when we inspected. Followed up with the agent who told me verbally, no paper trail, that the landlord has, had just instructed him to paint over the top of it and he just did it. Took a month to get the leak rectified as they had to coordinate with the agent who managed the apartment above us. Fixed a leaky shower up there, then someone came in to wipe off the mould and paint. Didn't reoccur, which was good. But also at this place, we kept getting the smell of poo through the house. Couldn't work out where it was coming from. We felt it may have been the bathroom, but we weren't sure. Then one day I was having a shower when I heard someone upstairs flush and after a few seconds, a waft of air hit me directly on the face with the smell of poo. After months of emailing the agent, they finally agreed to send someone out after we served them a 14-day notice from VCAT. The body corporate sent a plumber out who discovered that the pipes had been co connected incorrectly. 
If you're technically minded, the sewer line from the apartment above us had been connected directly to our shower drain above the trap. I work in warranty at a building company, told everyone at work, decades of experience, and no one had ever seen such a shoddy job. Then the apartment got sold and the new owner had the gall to raise the rent. We moved out at that point. The shower issue was never fixed. Whoever lives there now is probably putting up with it still. Um, so Kath and Catherine says, I lived with a guy in a share house who smoked a lot of pot. He lost it, trashed the place, tried to strangle a female housemate. None of us had each other's details because we all sublet from him. I was only 18 and had no idea what was going on. Had to break in past his barricades to get my stuff. Didn't get the full story for months until randomly saw the female housemate on the street and she was so relieved that I was okay. The agent did nothing because he was the leaseholder. Didn't get my bond back and was terrified at the smell of pot and, and incense for the next, well, forever. Um, a, Twitter una, a Twitter user called 100% Good Opinions says, Forgot to check the communal laundry facilities listed on a rental before I moved in. It was a sink open to anyone in the street and a rusty clothesline. I offered to put a second-hand machine in at my own expense since there were only three tenants, but was denied. <laughs> that one to me is crazy. Like, I've had the same experience with communal laundry, meaning a space for you to put your washing machine. Um, but the idea that they would deny the request just to put in a machine is strange to me. Um, anyway, Sophie says, We moved into a place we'd previously inspected when it was for sale. But in the interim, the owner's, the owner's brother had been the tenant. Filthy, unmaintained, no heating. The agent's ad had said central heating. Some lighting not working. We found an ice pipe on top of the kitchen cupboard. We cleaned the place ourselves. The agents refused to provide heating until we badgered them a lot and then brought over some crappy bar heaters. No insulation and cracks everywhere, so we stopped them up with foam sealant. It was cold and damp. The floorboards started falling apart under the carpet and mould crept up the walls, releasing reddish spores that covered our belongings. We couldn't clean it off. We tried to resolve these issues with the agent, but they dramatically quit one day, saying we were difficult and we'd lied to them, so we dealt directly with the owner, who was apologetic, and let us move out with no penalty before our lease was over. Ten months of hell. Um, brunch is Praxis, and the handle there is um, at BobBrownLover420, so I just want to give a shout-out to that incredible Twitter handle. Um, around 2009, my parents split, but my mum had never been on any of our previous leases, so she had no rental history, despite renting her whole adult life and raising five kids. She had two or three jobs at the time, but she couldn't find any landlords willing to rent to us. So her, my brother and I were homeless for a couple of months, living in a caravan in the middle of nowhere, while my mum went back to the city every week for house inspections. Eventually she found a shitty, shitty place in a shitty suburb, and even then it was only a three-month lease. This place was dank. But after living there for the full three months, we could upgrade to a slightly less shit place with the same agent on a six-month lease. Rinse and repeat for a while, moving whenever there was anything cheaper. We were always one withhold bond away from homelessness. And the last one, which is like a bit of comic relief after that horror, um, horror show of stories, Noisy Benign says, um, I was living in a house in the Gabba and I came downstairs to the laundry room and I found my landlord wearing one of my shirts. <laughs> That's my shirt. She looked at me confused. I am six foot three, covered in tattoos, and she is a tiny old lady with very grey hair. The shirt is massive on her. She said, is it? I could swear I bought it at... Uh... <laughs> I burst out laughing. That's my shirt. I know it's my shirt. Oh, uh, Sorry. The shirt is definitely mine. It was hand-printed by a friend from California, and after I catch my breath, I insist she, she change into one of my cheap shirts, and I take back my, my hand-printed one. I still have it. <laughs> so I guess that's a little slice of life to illustrate the kind of human um, the human element of all this, like what's at stake when we talk about housing. Um, and thanks to our listeners for sending that in. Um, if no one else has any points, I thank Jim for coming on. <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> 
I'm Where can people find more of your work if they are interested? Uh, yeah, you can check out Junkie. I have a story up every few days at the least. Um, just some other injustice that's like incensed me enough to get me to write a story. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Jim Malo. You spell Malo M-A-L-O. Um, and I realize how much of a wanker that uh, handle makes me sound like, and I'm really sorry. <laughs> but um, it was funny to me because, you know, Paul Barry reckons that he needs it. So, you know, I probably do too. Great. All right. We'll leave it there. Bye, Thanks everyone. so much, guys. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye.